the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever is on your heart, uh, whatever you've been wrestling with in the scriptures, um, questions about what we believe as Christians and why, anything and everything will do the best that we can to answer. We got a lot of questions in today. Uh, but remember, we always prioritize your phone calls. So if you want to call and ask your question, just dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button at the top of your screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio audience. I finally feel like I'm sort of getting back into a schedule here. This is the Friday show. I will say, however, it doesn't feel like a Friday. Uh, I would appreciate some prayers. I um, We have our Bible study tonight, of course, uh, in Acts chapter 19 here at 7 o'clock. Uh, but I'm leaving tomorrow morning to go to Durango, Mexico. We planted a church uh, in Durango about um, 10 years ago. Uh, Pastor Jay Bentley and his beautiful wife Carmen and a bunch of kids. Uh, and they've just been doing a great work there. And I haven't had the opportunity yet to go. I'm not a great traveler, and I'm going to a foreign country. So I would just appreciate if the Lord brings me to heart or mind. Keep me in prayer. Um, over the weekend, I'll be speaking there on Sunday uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Pastor Rich Ortiz will be sharing the word, and uh, he will be a blessing to everybody. So that's what's going on here. Uh, over the weekend, uh, wherever it is that you're going to church, go offer your body to God, offer your heart to God, be used to minister the love of God to the people, um, whoever you encounter. Don't just hang out with the people that you always hang out with, but look for people who look like they're in pain, who look like they're hurting, more importantly, who look like they're lost, because you have the answers. I promise you the Lord will truly bless your efforts. One more time, and then we'll get to questions. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, my first question from our email inbox. Uh, This one is from Brian, and he says, I have a follow-up question to the impeccable nature of Jesus. We had that question uh, earlier in the week. If Jesus did not have the capacity to sin, what was the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane? Brian, that's a great question, but it has nothing to do with temptation or sin. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, um, boy, i got to figure a way to get out of this. Uh, the struggle uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane was um, 
doing the will of his father, even though the will of his father was going to cause just a, a ton of pain. And remember, in the garden, he pleaded three times with his father. Father, is there any way this cup can pass? Three times he was told no. And, and Jesus' prayer, of course, was the prayer that God will always answer. Nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. But his struggle was with a couple of things, and I'm going to put them in the order that I think uh, from from the least important to the most important um, that, that he was struggling with. Uh, the least important was the pain, the suffering. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew Psalm 22. He knew the, the Psalms um, that dealt with his crucifixion. He knew the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. Of course he did because he wrote them. But imagine getting up in the morning and knowing that you're going to be beaten beyond recognition in in human form, knowing that people are going to mock you and spit on you. So he struggled with that kind of pain. Again, it wasn't, okay, I want to get out of this. I'll do anything to get out of it. Um, Father, he said, is there any way that this cup can pass? And the answer was no. I think the, the second thing that he was struggling with in the terms of increasing importance was the finality. I mean, I want you to think about something for a moment. This is something that we hardly ever think about. We don't think about Jesus dying, one who'd never tasted death. He was eternal. He was infinite. He was the ancient of days. He always was. He always will be. When Moses said, who shall I say send me in his conversation with Jesus in the burning bush? The answer was, tell him, I am sent you. I am that I am. And so Jesus, in his humanity, even wouldn't understand the struggle with death. He who always was, was going to cease in one of his two natures. The human nature, of course, he never stopped being God. God didn't die on that cross. But Jesus the man did. And then finally, Brian, I think the most difficult thing of all, and I think this is the thing that that um, kept Jesus awake. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Now imagine for a moment, holy, almighty God, perfect the angels around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now John's gospel in chapter 12 tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus. And suddenly he was for the very first time our holy God going to be tainted by sin. Imagine the worst things, Brian, that you've ever done. The very, very, very worst And Jesus became that sin. Now, from a human perspective, we might think, well, that's no big deal. Everybody sins. We're not perfect. But he never did sin. He was perfect. And to take on sin to to the degree that we know the Father had to turn away from him because God can't look upon sin. That's why the earth became dark for those hours on the cross. Jesus had to become your sin and mine and that was I think by far the biggest part of the struggle one other comment that I will make on this Brian um, we also know from John chapter 14 15 16 and 17 that Jesus was worried about his disciples he knew that they were mess ups we know that in that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. Now I'm sending them out like lambs among the wolves. And so clearly there would be some difficulty with that as well. Jesus really loved the twelve. He knew one of them was going to betray him. Those are hard things. So his struggle wasn't whether he was going to do it. His struggle was with those things I mentioned And like the human in all of us, Father, is there any way that we can do without this? And of course, we know the answer was no. Brian, I hope that helps answer your question. Here is a question from our email inbox from Chris. 
Chris says, Second Samuel twelve eight says, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Now, obviously, this is the Lord talking to David after his sin with Bathsheba. Here's Chris's question. What does God mean by saying, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more? Because in this list included is multiple wives. The Bible says not to multiply wives. How would you reconcile this with a verse with God's mandate to biblical marriage? Chris, a couple of things before I, I, I answer the question directly. I think this is really, really important. We simply cannot impute Western cultural concepts and ideas into ancient Bible stories that we're reading. And the heart of God was the same. And you're absolutely right. God said, don't multiply wives. And we know that men did. It was an accepted thing. God always knew that David and later Solomon was going to multiply women in his lives. But this is a call from God to David. And David's being confronted with his sin and, and, and on the brink of his repentance from it. This is God saying to David, why didn't you ask me if you wanted something? Now, that does not mean, Chris, that if God said, or if David would have said, okay, give me Bathsheba. That's not a prayer that God would have answered. God would have told David if he asked, no, she belongs to another man. David didn't ask, so that's not the issue. But God is simply recalling his faithfulness to David. David, I've done all of this for you. I've taken you from, from the flocks. You're a shepherd. And I made you the most powerful man on the earth. I made you, at this point, the richest man on the earth. I've withheld nothing from you. We have a relationship. What more could you ask for? And so this is a rebuke, a very stinging rebuke, by the way. In our culture, Chris, we might say that a father or a mother who's done a lot for their child um, and the child rebels, we might say, after all of everything I've done for you, this is the things I get. Well, that's kind of the tone that God is taking with David. So this isn't um, um, a statement about marriage at all. This is just a statement of rebuke, bringing the necessary conviction. Now, here's what's important for us, Chris, you and me. When we forget how good God has been to us, we have a tendency to focus more on what we don't have than what we do have. And and a lot of us are led into sin. We're tempted because we're focusing on things that God hasn't done instead of the things we know that he's done for us. And it's easy to be moved. David's head was turned as king. He had a heart after God's own heart, but his flesh was no better than your flesh or mine. So again, this isn't God saying, David, if you want a Bathsheba, all you do is ask me, and Uriah would still be alive. That's not even a possibility. God is simply saying, David, after all that I've done for you, after how faithful I've been, now you're going to do this on your own? David, you always depended on me for the things that you wanted, the things that you needed. In this case, you just took it yourself. So, Chris, this is a very stinging rebuke. Uh, if you're interested, Chris, we have a... Uh, um, you know, our Wednesday night Bible studies are actually in Second Samuel now, so it wasn't too awful long ago that uh, my study in this chapter um, and the previous chapter with the sin with Bathsheba uh, was completed. If you'd like to, to listen, if, if I can maybe answer more completely in the studies, all you have to do is go to calvaryessay.com and hit recent studies, and, and the rest will be pretty easy to navigate. So, Chris, thank you very much. I hope that helps. 340-9585. I'd sure like to make this week close with a lot of phone calls. So let's go to my next question. This is anonymous uh, from our email inbox. How can a believer determine God's will for their lives? Uh, anonymous, you're probably not going to like my answer. We like formulas. We like certainty. Uh, God's will for our lives is never going to be certain. You know, we're always looking at that long-term will. Okay, God, what do you want me to be? And what do you want me to do? And where am I going to be in five years? That's not the will of God. It's not the way to find the will of God. 
the way to know the will of God for your lives is to do what you know is his will today. Now you can open your New Testament and over and over. In fact, you can put in your concordance if you have a Bible study program, Anonymous. Uh, put it is God's will. And what will come up is a bunch of stuff that's God's will. It is God's will that you flee from sexual immorality. It is God's will that you're kind. It is God's will that you forgive others, even when they haven't forgiven you. It is God's will that you don't drink too much or you don't smoke marijuana. It is God's will. And over and over and over, it is God's will that you pray continually. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. That doesn't mean we pray for 24 hours. It just means we're always in a relationship where we can talk to God. That's what prayer is. Those things are God's will for our life. When we're doing those things, we're going to be walking with Jesus and we're going to walk right into God's will for the next day and the next day and the next day. And then five years or ten years down the road, you're going to end up exactly where God wanted you to be. And you're going to wonder, how did I ever get here? And Jesus is going to smile at you and he's going to say, you got here with me. One of my favorite things is not knowing what tomorrow brings. Now, that wasn't always the case. Like most Christians, you know, especially as a young Christian, I want to know, okay, Lord, do I turn left or do I turn right? What is your will? Well, I I think that's sort of a, a silly, childish approach that we have. If you want to know what God's will for you is, be obedient to what you know is God's will. Let me give you an example, Anonymous. What's God's will for your marriage? Well, you know it's God's will for husbands to love their wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, putting her needs ahead of yours. Wives, we know that it's God's will that you submit to the leadership of your husband. Now, if you're not doing those things, why would God tell you anything else? It's God's will that there would be no coarse language coming from your lips. If when you get angry, without thinking, you start cursing or you use foul language, why would God tell you anything else if you're not doing what he's asked you to do? So God's will is not mystic. It's not hard to find. All you have to do is first be with Jesus and then do what you know he's already told you to do. The more you obey, the more information you're going to receive. Anonymous, let me finish the answer with this one example from my own life. I was a a Christian for just six months, brand new believer, uh, still knew almost nothing. I was excited and thrilled that my sins were forgiven, and me and Jesus, we had a lot of fun. But I knew it was God's will for me to be a pastor. I knew it. He spoke so clearly to my heart, it came through a Bible teaching on the radio program. Raw Reese, who's a friend of mine, is uh, the man who was teaching on the radio. It was in Southern California, and he was talking about the call of a pastor. And it was as though Jesus was in the passenger seat of the car with me saying, now pay attention because this is for you. Now, as soon as I knew that was God's will, well, I swept into action. Okay, what do I have to do to be the pastor? What do I have to do? To, 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 to do what they do on TV. Again, I told you on this program before, I wasn't raised in church, so uh, I didn't have any religious baggage. I didn't know what a pastor really did. And the Lord never said a word to me. What do I do next? All I did was walk with Jesus. And actually, it was just a little over four years before Paul and I moved to Texas and started this church from scratch. And against all odds, I was a pastor. Why? Because Jesus made me one. So this isn't about what you have to do. You follow Jesus today, and you'll be with him tomorrow. If you're with him tomorrow, you'll be with him the next day, and obviously you do that every day. You're going to be with him in five years or ten years. And believe me, Anonymous, you're in love wherever it is you are. Thanks for the question. I hope that's not too disappointing an answer. The reason I say it's disappointing is because people want me to say, well, if you do this, do this, and do this, then God will tell you. The closest thing we get to a formula about knowing God's will is Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. 
therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we should offer our bodies to God. He actually says, in view of what God's already done, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's surrender. And then it says in the next verse, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The only place that can happen is in the Word of God. And then Paul promises this, then you will be able to know and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, acceptable will is. And he never gives us the long-term plan, but he's very faithful giving us the short-term plan. Uh, that's a good one for our next one. This is from Joshua from our email inbox. How would an individual know if they're called to be a pastor? Um, Joshua, I don't think there is a specific way that you would know, but but I can say this, you would know. God was very clear to me. I mentioned that in the answer to the last question. Um, but you would know. Now, here's some signs you're called to be a pastor. The first thing is you'd love God's Word. And I mean love it, devour it. Uh, you cannot be a pastor unless you love God's Word. Unless you completely trust it, you you buy it lock, stock, and barrel. Now, that's going to take a lot of wrestling with the Word. There's a lot of things that are hard for all of us to understand. But the man who's called to be a pastor, Joshua, that man would read God's Word even if he wasn't called to be a pastor. He would also have some insight into God's Word. Not because he's smarter, but because the power of the Holy Spirit is actively working in him. I'm not just talking about reading a chapter a day. I'm talking about really, really devouring the Word of God. So very, very important. That's how you would know. The other thing I'll say to you, uh, Joshua, is that people would know. And you would get all kinds of confirmation. So, Joshua, thank you. I hope that helps. Let's take our first phone call for the day. Let's go to Carrie on line one from San Antonio. Carrie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, uh, Carrie. I wanted to, uh, um, I have a, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you um, what, uh, what, um, I don't want to be, uh, you know, do say anything wrong, but anyway, I was just <laughs> wondering. What uh, what made you uh, decide to make San Antonio uh, the place where you wanted to uh, study and become who you are now? I mean, <laughs> you could have stayed in California, right, and done that? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously I have the free will to do that. Uh, for me, yeah. it was really, really easy. And one of the gifts that God gave me from the very beginning uh, and yes. I'm going to hang up and listen to you, okay? Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Um, 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 don't ever worry about saying something wrong. You've called before, and I know your heart, so so don't worry. Um, March 4th, 1994, I was at Bible college, uh, and in such a profound way, God spoke to my heart. And he said to begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. Now, Paul and I had never been to Texas. We didn't know anybody in Texas. And we never wanted to visit Texas. No offense. It's our home now. We love it. But we had no idea about Texas. March 4th, 1994, so profound, I wrote it down in my Bible. The Lord told me to begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. It never occurred to me to ask him why, at least at the beginning. So for two weeks every day, I was praying fervently for you, for the people in this listening audience, for people I didn't even know. And about two weeks of that goes by, and God put on my heart to say, why am I praying for the people in San Antonio, Texas? And Jesus spoke to my heart, and here's what he said. That's where I'll be waiting for you. I knew that was a calling to come. I knew that that disqualified any other place. 
Yes, I could have stayed in California, and I believe that God would have used me a little bit. I could have started a church. I could have struggled on my own. But Jesus made it clear to me uh, that he was waiting here for me. Now, from my perspective, that meant I had to get here as soon as I could. I know I had to finish Bible college, and I did that. But literally, within two weeks of me finishing Bible college, Paul and I were on Interstate 10 heading east. We'd never been here, had no idea what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. But Jesus made it really, really clear. Now, Paula is always the first person that confirms things for me. We're partners in everything. And so my first thing was, I thought she'd be really excited. You know, Paula, God gave me direction. I know where we're going. We're going to San Antonio, Texas. And her response was, no, I don't think so. And I told her, you pray about it. We're not going anywhere until we agree to go together. And and God needed to speak to her heart very, very clearly. Again, a couple of weeks goes by, and she comes to me, and she says, we can go. God spoke to my heart. And and. Carry the only thing I need to do anything God asked me to do is to know that Paul is with me and that I'm with Jesus and we'll do anything. So we could have stayed in California, but we chose not to. Great question. Thank you, Carrie. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, the last 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585. Here is a question from Anonymous uh, from our email inbox as well. Um... What was Paul referring to when he said that some in Corinth were weak and sick and many had fallen asleep? That's a euphemism for death in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 30. Anonymous, um, I was just having this conversation um, with um, some other pastors who were asking some questions uh, about this very issue and some other things dealing with communion. And that's the context that Paul was writing um, uh, about uh, when he made this statement. Uh, and he was talking about, uh, one of the things that we have to remember about 1 Corinthians in particular is that the, the, the entire letter is a rebuke. It's almost like a, a, a frustrated dad scolding his children. Now, we know that Paul loved them. We know from 2 Corinthians, which he wrote six months later, that that he wrote out of great anguish and with many tears. Well, if you just read First Corinthians, we didn't have Second Corinthians. You, you'd say, well, it just sounds like Paul's mad. It's because they were doing everything wrong in Corinth. The spiritual gifts were being abused. There was ungodly quarrels and jealousy and envy. I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and the super spiritual ones. Well, I don't bother. I'm I'm of Christ. Um. But one of the things that they were abusing, besides the spiritual gift, another of the things that they were abusing, is they were abusing communion. They were coming to these love feasts, and they were slightly different than than the way we celebrate communion now. But um, some people getting there, and they were taking everybody else's food, and they were were getting drunk there. They were, were going to excess. And Paul in chapter 11, is trying to convince them that they need to approach the table of the Lord um, in holiness. And this is a, 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 a really, really important warning for us to take heed of. He said that the fact was that there were some people in Corinth who were sick, and some had even died because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. Now, what an unworthy manner means in Corinth, we can't be sure. But an unworthy manner means, uh, and I warn my church every time we take communion about this, um, I warn my church uh, that if you're sitting here today, you call yourself a Christian, but you're living in willful sin, 
and you, you, you don't intend to repent and change today, then you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation that it's unwise to take communion. Now, it's not that we want to exclude anybody from communion, but I don't want to be a part of people partaking of communion, you know, trying to keep up appearances. Well, I don't want anybody to see that something might be wrong, so crackers get passed and the cup gets passed and they just take it. Um, God takes it very seriously. This memorial table of our Lord is the Holy of Holies of all Sundays. And and when we partake of communion, we need to do so with a heart that's right before God. And in Corinth, there were a lot of people, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us a story about one of them, who were just living in defiant, willful sin, all the while proclaiming to be a Christian and partaking of communion. Paul's saying, look, God doesn't wink at that kind of sin, that kind of hypocrisy. So that's what happened. They were sick because they were sinning. They were living a life um, that was in opposition to what they said or who they said they were. And some of them had done so to such a degree um, to, to, I mean, God judged them with death. And Ananias and Sapphira would be an example of somebody, well, not in Corinth, but they would be an example of somebody who, if they are saved, and I personally believe that they were, um, that they sinned so grievously that God judged them. He still took them to heaven, but he judged them. Um, I was asked this, of this question just the other day, do, do these, does this still happen in the church today? And the answer to that question is yes, undoubtedly. I have known, and, and this is just me talking anonymous, I have known, oh, I'm going to guess five or six men in my life who I'm absolutely certain were saved, who turned away from God in such a way that their lives denied him. Now, if you're really saved, you can't lose your salvation. And in every one of those cases, those people died not too long after they turned away from the Lord. One of them returned to a homosexual lifestyle, um, died of AIDS. Uh, another, um, I won't give you the details, but another um, got sick unexpectedly and, and died. Uh, I have seen the consequences come to bear on people where illnesses were caused by sin. Uh, we know, for example, the man that was healed at the Pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, the cause of his paralysis was sin. We know that because Jesus, in the same chapter, went to him the next day and said, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. So we can tie in sometimes our health, illnesses, and even death to rebellion against God. Now, whenever I say that, I want to be careful to say this as well. Most of the time when you're sick, it's just because you got sick, not because you're doing something. It's, it's a really terrible thing for Christians to say, well, um, he had a heart attack. He must have been sinning against God because God takes care of his people, those kind of things. Um, don't judge somebody who's sick if sin is the cause of their illness. God will judge them. He'll take care of them. What we need to do is just be willing to believe the best and pray for people who are in that question. So I hope that helps. 340-9585. Here is a question from Josh. 1 Timothy 5.1 says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were his father. My question is, what does Paul mean by that? Josh, what Paul means by this is, uh, you know, young people especially, and this is what what the context that Paul's writing. Uh, we have a tendency sometimes as young men now, I <laughs> say we, I'm laughing at myself because I'm certainly not a young man any longer. But, but young people are arrogant. 
you know, they think they've got the answers. Job's three friends, especially Elihu, who seemed to be the smartest of all three and had the most spiritual depth to him. He was a young man, and he just kind of went off on on not only Job, but Job's three older friends. Why? Because he thought he had the answers. And what Paul is telling Timothy is when there's an older man in the church, go to him as you go to your own father and exhort him. Be kind. Reach out to him. Instead of judging them, bro, you need to repent. Instead say, is there anything I can do to help? I've noticed you're struggling or you seem to be struggling and while I'm young and you're older than I am, I want to respect you, but I want to be there and help you. So that's what he's talking about in this context, Josh. He, he's simply exhorting him to get right with God, to stay right with God, instead of just deciding that you know what's best for somebody. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 or toll-free 877 KSLR. Here is our next question. It is from uh, another anonymous one from our email inbox. How do you deal with finding out your spouse was abused in the past by a family member? Whew, anonymous. Um, first, th- this is uh, these are the kind of issues that you really, really need to seek pastoral care. Um, Abuse in the past, especially sexual abuse, but not just sexual abuse. Um, There's so much baggage. There's so much pain. Um, Sometimes more pain than people are even aware of. And that's why pastoral counsel is so very, 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 very vital. And I've been faced with the situation over and over and over. Now, the one thing you don't do is let the guy off or let the woman off. It happens both ways. You don't just look at your spouse and say, well, you know, if anyone's in Christ, your new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Get over it. You don't do that. The, the second way you don't respond is as the husband, you know, the knight in shining armor, you don't get angry and want to go beat somebody up. You and your spouse, you need to talk about it. You need to pray through it. You need to dig into the Word together. And then, as I said earlier, you need to seek good and godly pastoral counsel. There's something else anonymous that everybody has to do. The whole point of all of this is forgiveness. One of the hardest things that I've ever had to tell somebody is to forgive the person who abused you. Well, how could I do that after what he did to me or what she did to me? Well, the answer is, if you don't, you're still going to be being abused. So you've got to work through this with forgiveness. And I have ladies in our church in particular who who actually have relationships with their abuser. Now, they're protected relationships. There's a lot of time that's passed. But these are things that have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with quickly. Now, can I also say one thing, and this is not... Um, the, the question that you asked, but when you have a relative who is abusing children, uh, the police have to be called no matter what anybody else in the family says, especially men who abuse children, they don't stop just because you're, in this case, your spouse, and I'm not saying that you're connected with this light train of thought. But, but because one child grew out of the age where this person was attracted to them doesn't mean that there aren't other children around. And you have to protect the children. You have to protect children. So we don't overlook it. We don't forget it. It's not that at all. You don't have to have a relationship with them. But you, you need to work so that you or your spouse, neither one, are bound by unforgiveness. It, again, it doesn't mean you've got to be best friends with them. But they need to know that you know. And then they need to hear about Jesus. So this isn't a theoretical question, Anonymous. I've had this very circumstance over and over and over. The only way people get through it 
is let Jesus wrap his arms around them and walk through it with them. Pastoral counsel is really, really important. So I hope that helps a little bit. Here is a question from our email inbox from Sandy. Can you speak about Christian fellowship and Christian friendship relationships? Sandy, if I understand the question, I'm guessing what you mean is what does it look like in Christian friendship relationships? Or or what does genuine Christian fellowship look like or feel like? Um, it's not just hanging out, although Christian friends will do that. But it's always being aware that Jesus is there with you. Always being aware that he's there with you. Um, a, A man and a woman can have a deep and godly Christian friendship. Jesus will be at the center of it. It won't be a relationship that's tempted with sin. It won't be a relationship that's focused on just having fun, although you will have fun. The same thing is true with friends from the same gender. But it'll be a fellowship, a relationship that's centered on the person of Jesus Christ, and it will be pleasing to him. And Jesus will be invited right in the middle of that relationship. Now, let me say one thing, Sandy, um, because I said a moment ago that men and women could have a Christian friendship. Many times, those friendships develop into something much more. But the way we know that the foundation is godly, the way we know that this is a relationship that was created by God and for His glory, is that, that, that when the relationship turns into something uh, romantic, it'll still be godly, it'll still be holy. So Christian fellowship is just making Jesus the center of everything that you do. I tell our church here all the time that whatever you're doing with Jesus is way more fun than doing anything without him. I actually, some years ago, Sandy had somebody get really, really angry at me, and he came up to me after church. He says, well, Pastor Ron, my wife and I, we're leaving the church. I said, well, why? What, what did we do? Well, nobody wants to just hang out. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I want people to come over to the house. I want to go over to their house. I want to play games. I want to do things. And they always insist on worship, or they always insist on the Word. It's always talking about Jesus. Why can't we just be real and have fun? And what I told him, Sandy, was there is no fun apart from Jesus. And he left the church. But you know what? He missed out. Because real Christian fellowship it's only possible because of the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. So if I understand your question correctly, that's the best I can do. If I misunderstood it, then do me a favor, please, and maybe write again and send it in so we can get some more clarity. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. 9585 We've got a little bit of time left in the program in the week. Here is a question from Jeffrey. Can the devil read our minds? Jeffrey, no, he cannot. Uh, He can plant ideas in our minds. We know that because repeatedly um, we know that Satan moved on Saul's mind, King Saul. He moved on David's mind. He plants ideas. He's always doing that. He's an expert on it uh, or at it. But he cannot read our minds. Only God can read our minds. Only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is omnipotent. The devil is a created being. Now, having said that, I also, Jeffrey, want you to know that the devil is the greatest, by far, psychologist of human behavior, student of the human mind that's ever been on the face of the earth. He is an expert, and he can predict by patterns. He can predict how we're going to respond to things. Uh, I told you a minute ago, he can plant ideas in your head, so he can manipulate our behavior for sure. But he can't read your minds. I have had people come to me and say, Well, Pastor, I'm afraid to pray out loud because I don't want the devil to hear our prayers. You don't have to worry about that. When you're with Jesus, the devil is going to be far away. Jesus is not going to let him intrude on your prayer life. 
That's where we have to trust God. But he can't read your mind. You don't have to worry about keeping things quiet or silent. Um, the devil can huff and puff and threaten to blow your house down. But that's the limit of his power. When we're children of Almighty God, we are the most protected of all people. doesn't mean the devil won't harass us. We know that he will. It doesn't mean that he won't lie to us and tempt us. We know that he will. But we need to remember that it is always God who's got us. Father, I've lost none that you've given me, Jesus said. In the same gospel, he said, they're in my hands and they're in your hands. No one can snatch them out. So we don't have to be afraid of the devil. We have to respect him and his power. But we don't have to be afraid of him. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for our live calls and questions. Don't know how much time we've got left. About five minutes left. Here's a question that I can do then from Carrie, or I'm sorry, Tamara. Tamara says, and this is a really sad question for me, Tamara. I'm losing faith in the church. It seems there's so much injustice going on. In parentheses, she says, I read about it online that I can't trust church any longer. What advice would you give me? Well, Tamara, my advice would be to be the answer to your problem. Um, You know, because people who call themselves Christians or people in church do bad things. Doesn't mean you have to. If someone else is a hypocrite, then you can be sort of the offset of that hypocrisy by being committed and devoted to your walk with the Lord. The second really practical thing that I can say to you is stop reading junk online. You know, why would we spend our time reading blogs or Christian commentary when people are complaining about Jesus' bride? You know, if you would come to our church, and I don't know you, Tamara, so I'm just using this as an example. But if you come to our church and you said, well, I don't have faith in the church any longer, I would say, well, then go out and be the church. Be the one who's consistent. Be the one who's loving. And be the one who's kind. Trust God. Jesus said, and I'm going to be actually teaching on this this Sunday in Durango, Mexico. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And Tamara, one of the things I've used this before at church and here on the radio program as well. But we're slowly developing a church culture that says, well, Jesus, I love you, but I think your wife is ugly. Remember, the church is his bride. And he not only loves us and protects us and uses us, he's given us his authority on earth. And the fact that some abuse that position of authority. It's not a reflection of him. So find a church. You can't serve the Lord fruitfully if you're not part of a church body. People get mad at me when I say that, Tamara, but you shouldn't get mad at me. That's what the Bible teaches. We have to be a part of a body. Not to be saved or get saved, but because we are saved. And this Christian church ought to be the one place we can't wait to get to because if you were to come again to our church on Sunday, you'd find a whole bunch of people that are hurting, that are broken, that are confused. And you could be Jesus to them. You could be the one who puts your arms around them and welcomes them. You could be the one who says, you know what, you look like you've got a lot on your mind. How about we go out to coffee after church? You could be the one who comes up and fulfills a need in service. I think, Tamara, people who say, as you've said, I'm losing faith in the church, I, I think they've got the wrong idea of what the church is. It's not a building. It's not a pastor. It's not some jerk or jerkette who's mistreated you in church. You're the church. And you're God's answer. Potentially, you're God's answer to those who are doing the abusing. 
those who are responsible for the injustice. Please, 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 open your Bible, trash your emotions and your feelings for a moment, stop reading all of that silly gossip online, and do just what Jesus told you to do. He's bigger than anything and everything. I'll be praying for you, Tamara. Here is the last question for the day, for the week, actually, from Pamela. Why do I keep doubting my salvation? Well, Pamela, I'm going to suggest a couple of things. One, is there sin in your life? If there's sin in your life, you're giving the enemy an opportunity to destroy you. Second thing I would ask, are you really saved? Is there fruit coming from your life? Third suggestion is unbelief. Maybe you're focused more on you than you are on Jesus. If you're truly a believer, and I have no reason to doubt that you are, if Jesus said that no one can snatch you out of his hands, if Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, if Jesus said, all beautiful you are, my darling, you're perfect, there's no fall in you, and you still keep doubting your salvation, that's a matter of faith. You're listening to an enemy who wants to destroy you instead of listening to the promises of God. It doesn't matter how you feel or what you feel. You're listening to the Lord, to, to the wrong one, wrong voice. Well, thank you for tuning in this week. You've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. I know you're going to go to church this week. Be God's heart. Be His hands. Be His kindness. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back, Lord willing, on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. May the Lord use you for His glory this weekend. See you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.